This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. No path, no wisdom, and no gain. In Zen, we realize we are the whole universe. Since we are the whole universe, there's nowhere else to go, and so we say there's no path. Since we are the whole universe, there's no thing outside of ourselves, and so we say there's no wisdom, and there's nothing to gain. Daido Roshi would often remind us, from the beginning, we are perfect, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Before we even heard about Zen, long after we die, in every moment of failure and success, in every happiness, in every embarrassment, in every fear and desire, in every step, in every breath, before enlightenment, long after we're enlightened, there is no path, no wisdom, and no gain, and we are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And yet, we don't see this truth, and we don't trust it, and we hold tightly to what is ours, and lament what we've lost, and we desire what others have, and we define our terrains and our identities for fear that if we don't do that, something awful might happen. We might just cease to exist. We like to hedge our bets to keep one foot on side of the this, this side of the threshold, just in case. <clears throat> in, as we know, in investing, we're told to diversify our portfolio. And so too in life, we do this. And yet this can leave us fragmented, spread too thin, unable to completely be where we are, or commit to anything, because we've always got a plan B, and we're told this moment is all we have, and yet we're always thinking about the next moment. And we're always preparing and preparing for some future time and place where we imagine we can finally come to rest. And so we have this practice called Zen, in which we sit in a particular posture in a room such as this, and we feel our breath and we study our mind and don't know quite what to make of all the different parts, the different fragments of our experience. And so, for the time being, our teachers set up a path. We have eight gates, ten stages. And we're told to walk this way, not that, do this, not that. And we can be forgiven for thinking that as long as we sit here dutifully, following the instructions, we'll eventually be rewarded is something amazing. <laughs> Some other life that is certainly a lot better than this one. In fact, any other life would do. And we'll become a different person who is more charismatic, more lovable, and will be younger, more fit. <clears throat> and we'll be a lot more confident. And we'll never have to say clean a bathroom. Or if we do, it'll feel amazing like we're dancing or composing a symphony. 
So we wait and wait, and seconds turn into minutes, turn into years, turn into decades. And we listen to our teachers, and we read the sutras, and we invent a word like wisdom to separate this out from what we might come across in other parts of our lives, like reading the New York Times. And we start to think that this wisdom is something we'll get and have for ourselves. And we can do whatever we want with it. It's like some kind of magical power. And as we go along in this way, minding our own business, someone comes along and whispers in our ear, practice is enlightenment. And honestly, we're not sure quite what to do with that, because we know full well that if this is enlightenment, then this isn't, all, this isn't worth much more of our time. But we hesitate, and somehow we can't just get up and walk away from it. And instead, we sit up a little straighter and peer into the darkness a little more intently, maybe for a moment or two, maybe not knowing quite what we might find there, but being open to anything, everything, until a new idea arises to make sense of it, and we close up around it and find yet another way to cope with the mystery and the fear. Maybe we're angry or defiant, or maybe we just become numb. And so it continues. Another breath, another day. We practice. So practice is enlightenment. There are many paradoxes like this in Zen that our teachers like to give us and sort of taunt us with. Um, We can't be sure really quite why they do this. Take, for, for example, another one. You and I are the same thing, but I'm not you, and you're not me. Daida Roshi used to say that one as well from time to time. In fact, in almost every talk he would give, there was always something like that, which was just incredibly frustrating and would, would often make me angry. <clears throat> but that isn't my only reaction. I think there's something in each of us who hears that and who understands. You can call it the Buddha, a Buddha, call it Buddha, call it the true person of no rank, but it's better not to call it anything. And even before we came across this thing called Zen, it was awake and it was guiding us. And these paradoxes, this wisdom, speaks directly to that person. So take Dogen in Fukanza Zengi, describing how to do Zazen. He says, think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. This in itself is the essential art of Zazen. So what the heck is think not thinking? And yet, it bothers us. We want to know. And in not a very casual sort of way, we really want to know. It's funny. So in Zen, we're taught to practice moment to moment. We are taught to live our lives as if we are a Buddha. And the precepts are the moral, moral and ethical teachings we take up 
and they define the activity and the behavior of a Buddha. And so we take them up and practice them for practical reasons, because they work. They described how to act in accord with reality. And so we're told to practice giving, for example, when it doesn't feel like the thing we want to do. Similarly, we're told to sit zazen without any idea of gain, because that attitude is aligned with the way things are, with the ultimate realization of no gain. And so we study one by one all of our gaining ideas, all the thoughts of ourself that we build up and all the fantasies for our lives, and we feel how they cause us suffering. And eventually we become so sensitive that the suffering becomes extremely intense and we'll do anything rather than hold on any longer. And so finally, we let go. And this process applies on all levels of our lives, from the minute moments of zazen, studying the shadows of thoughts, to the large actions of our lives, where we see how the very fabric of our lives gets corrupted by our thoughts and gets directed by them, and by our our various gaining ideas. And from this, whole industries emerge. And one of the things I love about social media is that we can observe all the way, all the ways we each cherish ourselves. <laughs> and we each create identities for ourselves to defend against any feelings of inadequacy. So it's, I feel it's the first time in human history we've been able to see into each other's minds in this particular way. So if you take Facebook, for example, all the ways people put themselves forward is quite fascinating. And perhaps, you know, we're the one with all the best insights into things, or we have had the best experiences, or the best, most elaborate desserts. And we want people to know just how we're progressing with our bucket list. For example, um, where where we set up, you know, these experiences we want to acquire, and we feel a sense of accomplishment, perhaps, when we you know, do these things like base jumping in California or we hike the Inca Trail. And we can tell everyone about it. <clears throat> I actually did a bit of research into this bucket list phenomenon. And the Urban Dictionary defines it as, it's a list of all the things you'd like to do before you die or kick the bucket like visiting the Grand Canyon, falling in love, or falling into the Grand Canyon. (laughs) And there's actually a website for this called bucketlist.net. And it says that it can help you find an instructor, an epic experience, or that adventure you've always wanted. And it has this whole database of experiences. So some of them are horseback ride on Monterey Bay, there's the the vodka train experience. And it's 21 days from Moscow to Beijing on the Trans-Siberian train, also known as the vodka train. And it goes on to say, you'll enjoy enjoy an unforgettable trip with the Trans-Siberian train along one of the longest railroads of the world, following in the footprints of Alexander von Humboldt. There's also Skype's Skype styling sessions where you can dress like a celebrity. And there's this thing called zorbing, 
And zorbing is a recreational activity which involves rolling downhill inside an orb, generally made of transparent plastic. And you have two options. There's zydro, which is a sort of water ride, and the version of the zorb, or there's zorbit, which is the dry version. <coughs> so, in my, in my view, there's nothing wrong with these activities, but it's the way we use our mind that makes a difference. And it's how we attribute meaning and gain to, to doing these things that makes them feel, at the end of the day, all in all, unsatisfactory, empty, or not. And with social media in general, because so much of our lives these days and communications happens online, that I think it's even more important to be with each other in person in a community like this, where we are exposed to each other in real time, uh, we're exposed to each other's moods and habits, and we learn how to be vulnerable and seen for who we actually are and who we are becoming. So in Zen, we learn how to be in this world in a way that's engaged, wholehearted, and complete. So we learn how to be in the world of gain and loss, rich and poor, in a way that's free of gain and loss, rich and poor. When we're clear on no path, no wisdom, no gain, we no longer get confused and we are free within the ups and downs of our lives because each up and down is itself complete and something we can rely on. When we are clear on no path, no wisdom, no gain, then we're free to risk everything and pursue great things because we're free from the fear that if we fail, that we'll somehow be diminished or if we succeed, will somehow be improved. So I'm a big fan of tennis, and I especially love watching uh, Federer and Nadal. And the way they play, uh, their passion for the game, uh, the way we, they deal with uh, success, victory or, or defeat. And as you may know, Federer won his 20th Grand Slam in the Australian Open a few weeks ago at the age of 36. And in his post-match interview, he offered an unusually candid view inside his mind. He said, I didn't fall asleep very well after the Chung match. I think it surprised me that at this stage of a competition in the semis to get a walkover. That was very odd for me. I couldn't fall asleep until three in the morning. All the next day I was think already thinking about how should I play Marin. How cool would it be to win 20? But no, don't think of it. How horrible would it be to lose it? I had it for over 36 hours, to be honest. It was a lot. Like I explained, I felt like the finals came very quickly because of not dropping any sets and stuff. Still having so many emotions left. I needed to probably work through these emotions this way. That's what made me nervous. But it's all good. I had a good start to the match. I think I lost the second because of nerves, but to be honest, it's all good. I like to care. It's good I can care about these matches. So that's Roger Federer's mind. <laughs> Is he free 
or bound within his situation. Is this enlightenment or delusion? So for whatever reason, we here have chosen to take up the struggles and the pain of the Zen path. We've chosen to take up all the perplexing koans and paradoxical teachings. And I think it's good to be disturbed by these Zen paradoxes and to feel the aggravation stir within us. And if we look closely, we'll see that it's the same aggravation that we feel when we stare in the mirror and notice how we might be aging. Or when we're jealous of a colleague at work getting a promotion instead of us. It's our little selves that are getting all confused and worked up. And they're creating a lot of noise. And they're being threatened. But if we create a space and we listen to them whine over and over and over again, perhaps eventually they might get it. That we're actually here for them and we're on their side. And we'll listen to them no matter what. Give me your worst. I'll be here for you. I'll hold the space. Let me know how you feel. And as we continue to practice, we get a little more confident in this. And we'll find that we can start to do this for the people in our lives, those that are hurting or who need an ear. And to our surprise, we realize that in these moments, it's us ourselves who are being healed. Zen practice is so special and so rare. And if we are to make it the defining things in our lives, the defining thing in our lives, it can transform everything. But often, practice can seem like a burden or a prison sentence. But it's actually not necessarily severe or heavy. Zen is itself nothing other than our lives, than the moments we are most human, most ourselves. <clears throat> and in all the other moments, we practice. Sometimes they say that there's no way to stray from the path. There's nothing apart from the path. And even though this is true, it's possible to spend years and decades of our lives treading water, creating patterns, comforting ourselves in one way or another. And I've found that the best way to avoid wasting time is to practice with the Sangha and to work closely with the teacher. And then we stand more of a chance. <clears throat> So I imagine a few of you, uh, there's a lot of newer people here, and there's probably a few people considering becoming a formal student of one of our teachers. And so I thought I'd share a little bit about that. And as I was preparing this talk, I came across this, um, it's called The Seven Key Attributes of a Teacher. And it's just somewhere in Zen, Zen literature. And they are, Great capacity and great function, swiftness of wit and eloquence, wondrous spirituality of speech, the active edge to kill or bring life, 
wide learning and broad experience, clarity of mirroring awareness, and freedom to appear or disappear. And it's actually said that these same attributes can be used to describe a great warrior. So when I think about it, I think what I've found to be very important for me is that I'm inspired by my teacher. So inspired to walk this path, to endure the unendurable, to let go, to be present. And for me, I, I became Shugen Roshi's student in 2003. And prior to that, I had spent a, a year at Zen Mountain Monastery working quite closely with Shugen. So seeing him every week, working with him during sessions. And yet the whole time, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay at Zen Mountain Monastery or commit to Shugen. And I was reading a lot about other teachers and other, other monasteries. And so after that year, I left and I went and visited some other monasteries to check out what was going on, see if there was something better out there, see if there's some, you know, teachers who are more impressive or whatever. <clears throat> and and I did that, and I went to California, and I ended up living in a monastery in Ottawa, in in Canada. And I had a suspicion that this monastery would be the best one. Um, their practices seemed more refined, more sophisticated. Um, their teachings were very sort of um, sort of complex and impressive. And they had a very dedicated monastic staff and teachers. And I stayed there for several weeks working closely with them. But I didn't realize it, but I, I, had st- I, was, I was struggling, and I was not fully settled there. And as the time went on, I sort of di- you know, couldn't really find a home there. And one day I woke up, and it just became very clear that I felt sort of a longing for, to be back at Zen Mountain Monastery to be back working with Shugen. And I didn't really expect that, um, but it was very clear at that time. And, uh, and then it was, everything else was sort of straightforward. I, I left that day, in fact, and I, a few weeks later, went back to Zen Mountain Monastery and eventually became Shugen's student. And so for me, um, Deciding on a teacher like that was, you know, maybe a bit like falling in love. Uh, but perhaps for others, it's, it's a different process. So Shunryu Suzuki writes, So as long as you continue your practice, you are quite safe. But as, as it is very difficult to continue, you must find some way to encourage yourself. As it is hard to encourage yourself without being in, becoming involved in some poor kind of practice, to continue our pure practice by yourself may be rather difficult. This is why we have a teacher. With your teacher, you will correct your practice. Of course, you will have a hard time with him or her. But even so, you will always be safe from wrong practice. So it's easy to 
talk about Zen and go on and on like this. And it's easy to be on our best behavior when we come to the temple. But we need to challenge ourselves and remember what ache brought us here in the first place. And use that to become maybe a little bit kinder. We can use our suffering to become more sincere. Sincere enough to engage practice in the darkest areas of our lives. When we're half asleep, or when we're blinded in irritation. We're not even, when we're not even sure what practice is supposed to look like. When all that we can do is bear witness to the chaos our stinginess, our pain. And if we can do that, even just a little bit, we'll be be reclaiming another part of ourselves. And all, all along, no path, no wisdom, no gain. Right? Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open-access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.